Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Trustee Table. I'm Anne-Marie Balzano, Director of Leadership and Governance at NAIS, and today I'll be speaking with Heather Hurl. Heather is the Executive Director and Chief Executive Officer of the Enrollment Management Association, a nonprofit member association serving independent school enrollment and admission leaders through the best science, research, and training. A thought leader in enrollment management, Heather personally led the charge for the professionalization of the admissions and enrollment professional, demanding that industry colleagues mobilize to reposition the work of enrollment management as both strategic and foundational to institutional success. Heather's career began in independent schools as an administrator, student advisor, and teacher, and then embarked on a successful 23-year tenure in leadership roles with the Association of Boarding Schools and eventually serving as a vice president at the National Association of Independent Schools. Heather, thank you so much for taking a seat at the table today. Well, thank you for inviting me, Anne-Marie. I'm so glad to be here. And um, the Enrollment Management Association is honored to have a chance to talk with trustees I've played that role in several schools and also for some independent school associations, and I can pretty much appreciate the concerns trustees are having right now here in early 2021. Right. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of a minor miracle. We made it to 2021. <laughs> and we've learned a lot. This is the interesting thing. We've learned a lot. So oh, we can apply that for planning going forward. Yeah, we sure can. And and because we made it to 2021, and we really see that ramp up um, in enrollment management. And so before we dive into some of the trends that you're seeing, let's start with a definition for our listeners who might not be enrollment or admissions experts. So what does the term enrollment management actually mean for independent schools? Sure. Well, let me start by saying it was born in higher education in the 1980s. And one of EMA's trustees and a writer for NAIS, Chris Baker, um, who's now a consultant uh, with independent schools, likes to tell the story that she was in the office where the very term was born. She was working at Boston College in the 1980s. And back then, Boston College was a regional college, mm-hmm. just serving New England students. And um, it was handed a huge enrollment gift in 1984 when their winning football player, Doug Flutie took the Heisman Prize and suddenly overnight they were in high demand. Everyone wanted to get into Boston College and it required their admission team to really rethink who they were, how they were going to manage this sudden onslaught of interest. And their dean of admission at the time, a guy named Jack McGuire, who was a a strong economics and data background, decided he was going to start building more predictive data and began to really put data around what had been largely an intuitive job. He started really quantifying both the yield of new students, um, the retention for students, as the school started positioning itself to grow with this new demand on it. And McGuire also knew that there were more things to watch than just the admission data. He was beginning to look at student experience data and really unite the work across different silos at BC. Mm -hmm. Um, So he began to meet with division heads about programming and branding and really built, I think, a very good model talking about seven different levers that contribute to the success for enrollment and began gathering data in each of these. And Chris, as a young admission officer learning at his feet, carried all of that into the independent school world when she started working in the Office of Admission from Milton Academy. And from there, she began the sort of cause. She wrote the handbook on enrollment management, still a great read, like 15 years later. And I think she's really been helpful in uh, teaching admission and enrollment leaders how to use data 
to do a better job with their work. Well, th- thank you. That I did not know that historical perspective. You know, in that historical perspective, you you demonstrate that enrollment management isn't just one thing, right? It's not just looking at how many students are coming in and how many students are going out, but it's really this holistic approach. Um, and as you said, has you know many levers that need to be pulled over time. Yes. And all need to be studied. <laughs> exactly. So so in a recent presentation to the Canadian Association of Independent Schools, you stated that enrollment practices of the past will not sustain independent schools of the future. Can you elaborate on this a little bit more for our listeners? Oh, absolutely. So the playbook has changed for all schools. It was already changing, you know, starting in this decade and beginning to see new strategies in play for marketing, of course, as we became more oriented towards digital marketing. But um, the game is being played really now digitally and schools that are, for instance, using view books, still investing heavily in fares are probably not seeing a big return on their investment. So that's what I mean when I say, just don't lean on those practices of the past because they are often not um, serving what we need here in the future. Uh, Back to that uh, issue of looking at data to make sure you're investing well. So make sure that the marketing investments you're making are paying off and yielding students. Don't just keep investing, right? And make sure that you can uh, link a view book if you can still do that to enrollments and, and reasons why people enrolled. I, I think people have gotten very used to the tried and the true. And especially today, families are experiencing everything online in a pandemic world, especially true, right? Mm-hmm. And I had this fascinating conversation with the director of admission in San Francisco recently. She told me that due to the pandemic, they've been in major lockdown mode in California. She cannot bring families to her school for tours, all of the education being delivered virtually, all of her interviews online. And she flipped her model because parents were asking for more evening and weekend appointments given their other um, demands. And uh, that group of schools decided to develop an online assessment tool to serve the little children they were um, admitting. Any case, she said, even when the pandemic ends, she's gonna keep some of these practices because she's realized that you know, it serves families' needs better. Sometimes they can't take the hour and a half it requires to travel in for that you know, one hour face-to-face with her. And she says, I learn a lot about them. They're very gracious and sort of letting me understand who they are. They introduced me to their homes. I know so much more than I did before. And I feel like it's going to make me a better admission officer. I love that story because I think that illustrates the point that if you're using tools that are not serving you well, abandon them and start looking for the new tools that will, you know, deliver your desired results, particularly in recruitment. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm actually hearing that a lot just in terms of almost every aspect of schooling and even governance. So, you know, like this idea of, you know, why do we have meetings at a certain time on a certain day? Are we just following a calendar? Like, do we actually need to do that anymore? And I feel like the pandemic has really given us this opportunity to question and examine the way we do things. Um, You know, are we in routines just because it's the way we've always done it? And is this really an opportunity for us to kind of flip that on its head and, and really innovate in ways that, that we hadn't been forced to before? So true. We've been very tied to process in independent schools. I mean, I know everything from when we budget and offer new contracts to teachers to the whole admission process and timelines. And I think everything's been shaken a little bit. And it's good to challenge the assumptions around those processes and say, maybe this isn't the best way to do things. Mm-hmm. Let's let's try a better, easier approach, right? 
Um, so I, I, I can totally resonate around this concept of governance uh, needing to change too. And, you know, when you invest the time to physically be together, make sure you're using it as best as you can. And, and other, it's sort of like the same concept of, can you send an email or do you need a meeting for it? Right. Right. <laughs> all, all the same bundle of, of uh, decision-making, I think that has been made more profound inside of a pandemic. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and speaking of the pandemic, um, we've, almost made it through a year. I can hardly believe that. So what trends are you seeing now in enrollment management? How are families' perspectives on independent schools changed? Yes, yes. Well, so I want to talk about both macro and micro trends today because they are both happening simultaneously. It is really, really confusing. But I think a couple of macro trends that were happening before the pandemic are continuing and, and NEIS has been publishing and writing about them. So I'm gonna talk about some of those um, first and then we'll get to some micro trends that are happening kind of regionally or locally and those trustees should be aware of as well. So first to those sort of big macro trends. One of the biggest ones, which a number of articles have been written is this lower school decreasing, lower school student numbers decreasing. Before the pandemic, we were watching some national decline in students in lower grades, particularly in elementary school grades. And schools that were K through 12 were seeing more interest in middle and upper school. And the the thesis behind that was families were sort of waiting to invest in our schools, perhaps. We wrote an article in our magazine called The Erosion of the Base because so many schools that depend on those earlier students to kind of feed through the pipeline were suddenly challenged with having to go out and recruit for students at grades they'd never had to before. And so that's a national trend. I know NEIS has published in its last trend book about this. There's an awful lot to unpack and and look at data and maybe match your own data to some of those national trends. And parents have said part of the reason that they're foregoing uh, elementary education is cost. And that was also in some of our data. We publish every other year a, a report called the Ride to Independent Schools. We talked to families inside the admission process, and that's about to be published uh, this year. And definitely cost is on the minds of people as they think about when they want to invest. And it's hard to compete with free, as we know. Strong public schools are our parents' preference, right? So we have to c- compete against that often. The other thing to know is that this erosion, you know, has been complicated by the pandemic because families have especially with little ones at home, really become challenged with helping their little ones really thrive in an online environment. And so we've seen uh, a disruption of the trend, if you will, with more interest at the elementary school pushed by the pandemic, with parents saying, I will do anything to have my child in a place-based school. (laughs) At our schools, and certainly in some regions of the country, have remained open for the most part. So if that was an option, uh, parents went fully full tilt at it. That's a, a trend I'll speak about in a minute, which is this kind of rush at the end of last summer. The other big macro trend that's been being tracked for several years now is a decline in international student interest in the United States. Uh, we had seen dramatic growth in the late aughts and early teens. And then for the last three years, slight declines every year, especially from students um, coming from mainland China. Uh, first in boarding schools, then in day schools. Um, But we had seen this big boom and it was followed by slight decline. And this year has been dramatic decline for international families, again, for obvious reasons. There are visa issues and complications. There's health concerns in traveling. 
But our uh, latest survey with international families really is mostly focused on worries for, from international parents about children's psychological safety. And that is being uh, spoken literally around the world, not just from students in mainland China, but from parents reporting from Hong Kong, from Saudi Arabia, from Mexico, et cetera. And many of these same families who would have considered independent schools have decided to attend school in say Canada, where they feel more welcome. So I think we need to understand that some of the America first uh, rhetoric in politics has really pushed international families away from the United States over the last few years. And they've looked elsewhere to go to attend largely secondary school and college. This trend, by the way, has been big for higher education too. So I think it'll be interesting to see as a new administration begins in Washington, whether this changes and interest comes back to our country, but international students, both for the pandemic and also for political reasons have not been terribly interested in coming to our schools for last year. And I think a number of schools had built such sizable populations, they are now you know, having to downsize as a result. So then the micro trends I wanted to lift up. Well, first of all, no question, place-based education wins, okay? <laughs> Families, as they lived through last spring and having kids home with the pandemic, became more and more frustrated at watching their children fall behind or not be served well by their situation. And so suddenly in summer, we saw dramatic increases in June, July, and August, and even into September in our application system as families were applying there, trying to get into schools last minute, right? The national data sets are very concerning, I would say, and this is something for our schools to be thinking about. But every report that seems to come out with standardized testing suggests that some children have fallen behind dramatically with quantitative skills. And there, I predict there will be another rush at the bank at the end of this summer again, as people start dealing with the fact that their children may be behind. I do know that the Biden administration has been floating a concept of additional year of school for students who've fallen very far behind. Mm -hmm. um, that's wonderful. I certainly hope that, that they continue to explore that. But many families, I believe, have come to us out of utter frustration. I know NEIS publishes a lot of research around jobs to be done. Last summer, families had a job to be done. Get their kids in a place-based school at any cost, right? Right. We saw families leaving metro areas, physically moving to get close to either private or good public schools that were going to be open. A lot of movement to the south, et cetera, so, uh, where a lot of schools were open. And I think, you know, the other thing, not to make light of it, but the other thing is socialization of children um, and young people is so important. And parents saw the need for that as much as they needed childcare, right? Mm -hmm. So this fall, you know, after seeing this lower school decline, after seeing international students, uh, you know, receding and their interest, 60% of our schools reported in September that they had met or exceeded their enrollment due to this big rush at the end of summer. Now, the big question that we're getting is, will we be able to retain these families once the pandemic is over? And in fact, we're holding a retention symposium at EMA in March to get answers to this very question because is it just a sort of one and done, I needed you so much that I was willing to invest for one year? And we hope that's not the case. We hope that we have parents that will be and students that will be staying with us for longer. One other micro trend that I'll just uh, lift up is we've seen much more streamlined admission processes. As I told you about the San Francisco story, we've seen that across the country, many schools have gone test optional or test blind. 
uh, we have seen a slowing for fall of 2021. So if your school is seeing fewer applications at this, you know, at this time kind of compared to the year before, I wouldn't worry. Overall, we're seeing about 13% behind same time last year. And brand schools are actually seeing, the big market leaders are seeing high demand. But know that I believe it'll be a long admission season, just like last summer. And what I, I love this term uh, coined by one of my trustees, there's a flight to quality of families who care about education. And they're not on our timetable, they're on their own. The thing that I would say that really concerns me, and I, again, it's so linked to the vaccine coming out and being widely distributed, but large cities have really, um, because many of their workers have moved to remote learning, have seen an emptying out, New York, LA, San Francisco, right? And there's questions about whether families will return to those cities when the pandemic ends. And so I think for city schools, if you're a trustee serving a school that's seen that emptying out and even mid-year um, activity in some cities has, you know, families have just withdrawn their children because it's just too hard, right? Um, thinking, hearing particularly from LA on this count because they're in such utter lockdown. So I would say that, you know, you, you've got to factor that into your planning because until we have vaccines, you know, at large scale across the country, I'm guessing that there will continue lockdowns and we need to make sure that, you know, we're serving families as best we can given, you know, government regulation, et cetera. And I, I know I feel particularly for my colleagues in Southern California and um, Northern California, who are feeling the lockdown more than others across the country. Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, I've, I've been hearing the exact same thing. And I really like the way that you delineate between these macro and micro trends and more importantly, how this pandemic might have just long-term effects on both admissions and enrollment. Like you said, like this idea of, you said flight to quality and they're on their own timetable. And I heard you earlier talking about how that admissions director had just changed how she was doing admissions, doing weekends, doing evenings. I could see that just sort of expanding, like there is no enrollment season. It is always enrollment season. Right. No. And I, this is the thing. A lot of the big city schools, the ones in very high demand, obviously we're used to a very different timetable. You'd be largely finished, you know, by April or May with maybe a few little changes over the summer. And many are seeing this progression through to the end of summer when families just decide, you know what, what's being offered to me isn't good enough. And now I'm looking right. And the thing I'm going to tell you is I believe that we're going to see a lot of activity in late spring and summer because that's when large scale um, standardized testing tends to be administered in public school. I think we're going to see more reports about the falling behind of young people. And that will, I think, perhaps motivate families to look again at finding a place where a child can catch up. And I have a story to tell about that a little bit later as we get through our, our, our conversation. But I, I, I think there's some needs that our schools are uniquely positioned to meet because we do essentially customize education, right? We meet children where they are. Um, we carefully look to admit the right students, of course, but when they come to us, we work to make them successful and we're built for that. Yeah, it, absolutely. And, you know, and when you're talking about trends, I, I know we talked about so many different things, um, including international students. You know, we talked about people moving out of urban areas into more suburban or even country areas. Are there any other specific disruptors that you anticipate in the enrollment market in the next year? Clearly, global health is one that we'll never get over in our lifetimes because we've lived locked down for over a year. 
But I, I want to just say, I think, you know, we've learned a lot because of that. We've learned what people value. We've learned how to do a better job delivering our services online. But I would say, you know, we're always going to have to be have this shadow of the global health pandemic, which was the biggest one of all the different disruptors. I think technology itself has dramatically shifted things, but differently for college than for K through 12. Back to that place-based, right? So many families decided when faced with not a great situation for their children in K through 12, that they were gonna do essentially homeschooling with other families in their neighborhood and create a pod this year. And pod schooling has really put a burden <laughs> on groups of families. And uh, I read some very funny articles about it because, you know, it's a great idea. The concept is kind of a cool one, but teaching is hard work. And I think that um, that has been lifted up inside the pandemic to the point that, you know, if you Google a few um, pod learning, you'll see some of these articles where families, you know, basically are saying, I never realized how hard it would be, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's homeschooling is tough, right? And I'm using a curriculum that I bought, but it's just not really, it, it really didn't get me where I wanted to go. And the f- parents down the street aren't as good as I am. It's just, it's a very funny breed, right? I do think, look, we always know independent schools fortune rises with economic success. And I would say if I were a trustee, I'd be paying really close attention to the economics of the next few years, right? And make sure there's been lots of talk about whether we're going to see a recovery, if we're going to see a downturn. Those ups and downs, I think we will follow as a group of schools because we rely on tuition paying families um, for the most part. And so I think we've got to keep our eyes on the prize when it comes to economics. And yet we also have the opportunity really to show our, our best selves, I believe, because there's such a need, there is a job to be done <laughs> as an NAS's language right now to serve young people who have fallen behind, to serve young people with exceptional education. And never before has that been clear to parents, especially if they've been struggling at home with a not great solution for their children. So it's a really great point. So before we end, you know, I have to ask this question because, you know, for those folks who've been listening to to this podcast, you know, we're all about generative thinking. What kinds of generative questions should boards be asking themselves related to enrollment management right now? Mm, good question. So um, first of all, I would say it's tempting to micromanage all the areas of enrollment management. So your admissions work, your retention work, your branding work, your financial strategy work, your student experience work. The most important thing for boards to do right now is to knit that all together. We see silos in our schools and the partnership between the head and the board is never more critical than today, right? And then that partnership between the head and his administrative team or her administrative team is really important too because strategy is gonna be born in a cross-functional way to, I, I believe, improve enrollments. So with that said, I would tell you that I'm, I'm watching with love some of the cool innovations that are coming out of this pandemic and two to lift up that are program innovations that are worth, you know, your consideration and not specifically to transfer into your school exactly, but to ask you to think uh, as trustees, what are the special programs that we have that could meet these challenges of these times, right? The first story I'm going to tell you is about Baylor School in Chattanooga, Tennessee, My board chair is the chief financial officer there, Alice Joseph. It's an amazing school and boarding in day. Uh, They have an endowed uh, program in their school that's 
a center of excellence in the study of medicine. So students in, I think, junior and senior years have been studying cancer with professors from Baylor Schools of Medicine, university side. And what they found out mid-year last was that the Baylor School of Medicine was going to dig into COVID testing and begin to really work and help in that space. So the students followed suit. It turned out in within a few weeks, the teachers realized there was an opportunity for the school to help with COVID testing. And they began their own little lab with students working to do some of the testing as well. Fast forward, the state contacted Baylor, I think last summer, to ask if they would become uh, an in-state lab for you know, Tennessee because they needed additional help. And it was the fastest lab in the state for turning around testing. Wow. And multiple millions, millions of dollars later, <laughs> students are learning about COVID. They're pushing through testing every day. They're still the best you know, lab in the state in terms of getting turnaround, right? And while this revenue will go away when COVID does, it was such an incredible hands-on experience inside of the center of excellence around medicine that the school had been proudly promoting. Perfect mission fit, perfect teaching and learning opportunity, and a great way to make money, right? Great revenue stream. So perhaps when COVID goes away, they'll think of other ways that they can use that center of medical excellence to do other things that might earn revenue for the school. The other one I'll tell you is about Western Reserve Academy in Ohio. It's a boarding school there. And obviously last spring was really tough. They had, they sent students home and then managed virtually through the end of the year for most of their boarding students. And their head, Suzanne Walker Buck, was determined that they would reopen in the fall. And they had to come together as a school community to do some thinking about how that could happen. And she created what she called an innovation idea lab, right? And the whole there was a whole day activity design thinking where teachers and administrators came up with cool ideas and they rated them together what they might do. And as a result, she had a list of such creative thinking around how to reopen, how to protect and keep kids safe. They did all kinds of cool things, including bringing a food truck in, they, they recreated how they, you know, processed kids and, and, you know, the dorm situations, right? And then as the year got underway and they were largely in good shape when it comes to students not getting sick, they really learned that there were a lot of families out there frustrated with their children not having a great senior year. And they created an 18-month program, essentially a catch-up redo program for seniors which they've just enrolled nine students in at the mid-year point, right? They've always had this postgraduate year. They were able to take it and build it out to meet kids who were having a terrible last senior year. And as a result, they're serving uh, nine new boarding students and those, those students will be with them for 18 months. I think there are those kinds of opportunities, depending on what your program is, that can flex a little bit and serve lots of needs. And that's what I would say to trustees is, Lean on those innovative ideas in your school and make sure you have a, a venue for, you know, your teachers and your administrators to really uh, talk through some of those ideas. What might they do if given a little bit of support? Um, we're also overwhelmed and busy because of the pandemic, but there's something about new ideas, especially when they can earn new revenue for your school that can be, you know, give lift to challenging times. And so um, I would say, you know, help your school family uh, think about innovation and actually recognize and applaud what's already happened because every school's had to innovate. Yes, they have. And in really incredible ways, as you just demonstrated. What I like as you were speaking was this idea of really 
having this opportunity as trustees to really think about, you know, what do we have to offer inside this disruption, right? What opportunities are are resulting as a, you know, because of the pandemic? And, you know, it goes back to that, that idea of, you know, yes, we have to attend to those short-term, you know, issues that are happening, but also look at that long-term place and and figure out, you know, how do we position ourselves so that we are viable in the future, so that we do sustain in the long term. And I think that those examples that you provided were were really powerful. Excellent. So so thank you so much, Heather. This has been incredible. I know that the insights and you know the stories that you've shared today are going to be so invaluable to our members. Well thank you for the opportunity, Henry. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Trustee Table. We've included some great resources on some of the areas we discussed at NAIS.org, and you can also keep an eye on that page for new podcast episodes. Please be sure to listen, rate, review, and subscribe to a new episode each month. Thank you for listening.